Sports. Live and local. Of course, the piece you're listening to right now is not quite so local, but it was recorded live on the new album Taraf Siriana, sent to me by Dan Rosenberg. Thank you very much. And we're listening to Kuduka Al Maiz. We'll be hearing more of this album in the coming year, but I'm very excited to receive it now. This is Carol here with Arts Live and Local. Whoa, it's December 30th. It's true. It's December 30th. Right off the bat, before I forget, I want to highly recommend that you go to KMUN. Lots of reasons. Go to KMUN.org. And, hey, if you're in the mood, click on the Donate button. No time like the present. And this is a very good time. And then, of course, match that with the Oregon Cultural Trust and take it right off not a deduction, a credit on your state taxes. No other state in the country does this. We are special in Oregon. I know you're listening everywhere else too, but if you live here and you need more information, just check it out. Oregon Cultural Trust, just through tomorrow night. But first, KMUN.org. While you're there, Go to archives, kmun.org slash archives. This morning's Friday Folk was, well, I guess maybe it's not that unusual that Albert does a fabulous show. But today's was very special. And, um, whoa, there was a fantastic story in the second hour by Greg Brown, and you need to hear it. We all need to hear it. you got two weeks on that. Two weeks on all of our programming. Sending out happy birthday wishes from yesterday to Isa, right here on KMUN, and Faith, Faith, who has more names than anybody else I know. Well, in my album. Faith Forster, Harris Herkey in the background, happy 40th. And Pete Hutala, did I say 40? Yeah, why not? I may be 10 years off, but that's okay. And to Kyle, way up in British Columbia, happy 45th. Bill Svensson, I have no idea how old you are. And Lena Smith coming up this week, I do know how old you are. And Chuck Meyer, I certainly know how old you are. All these birthdays happening and bringing good wishes with them. And that extends to all the healing wishes to everyone, including Hope and Lulu and Linda and Susie and Reva and you and me and all of us, our planet, all the people in all parts of this planet. Well, You know, when you listen to this show, that my favorite way for healing is the arts. And I have someone here who is, well, she's going to tell us how long she's been doing this, but she's doing a great job over at the 
shouldn't say over at, although it is on the other side of the Columbia River, but we're all one beautiful community in Ilwaka, Washington, Columbia Pacific Heritage Museum, and the executive director is here with me, Madeline Matson. Hi, Madeline. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. Now that we're on the air, yeah, there's it's always all these last minute things. <laughs> Got to give a big shout out to Nick because <laughs> he's running up and down the stairs and taking good care, along with the rest of the staff here, takes good care of all of us. So, Madeline, how long have you been at the museum? Yeah, so it's been, uh, I've been director just over two years, but I started volunteering there when I was five. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I've been there for a few years. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So that uh, that tells us you grew up here. I did. Yeah, I grew up across the river. Where? Right there. In, in Long Beach. Yeah, just north Long of Long Beach. Graduated from Milwaukee High School. So, so what did you do as a volunteer at the age of five? Um, well, uh, I they made me stand out on the street with a <laughs> um, like a sandwich board sign okay. that said spaghetti feed. Okay. Uh, I and then when I was about eight, they put me in charge of the dollhouse exhibit. Oh. So I was the curator of the dollhouse. Oh my goodness! It was a big responsibility. Wow. Uh, so all kinds of stuff. I dressed up as a cranberry for the Cranberry Fair a few years. I love this. Yeah. I never heard any of this yeah. before. Okay, <laughs> so I think this is fantastic, yeah. though. Were there a lot of kids doing this? No. Uh, <laughs> nope. I think I was about the only one. Uh -huh. um, my parents have just always been very involved. Uh, my dad was on the board when I was a kid, and my mom was a volunteer. So I got I got drug around okay. a lot. Okay. Yeah. That's one of the best ways. Absolutely. It, and it works in both directions. I know people, no names except Dan Polensky, who's still dancing in the Nutcracker oh, wow. because his daughter, who's in her late 30s, started when she was a wee one. And, of course, he had to take her there, so he got involved. Yeah. She's long since graduated, mm -hmm. and he's still doing it. So in your case, you inherited this. I but did, you yeah. didn't go directly to museuming. No, I went off to college at the University of Oregon um, and studied journalism and cinema studies, actually. And so I worked as a photojournalist for a while and then uh, came back to the community after college and started a bakery. So I did that for a number of years. I remember that yes. part. Yes. So yes. are you not baking anymore? Nope, no more baking. I've got uh, oh. two kids now that keep me busy oh my God. and the museum. So I've got plenty of plenty on my I plate. I think I skipped a whole chapter. <laughs> yeah, but that's... Yeah. That's okay, because it sounds like you're doing wonderful things. Yeah. How old are your kids? Um, one is five, my oh. daughter, and oh. then one is just five months old. Okay. We'll, let, we'll give the five-month-old a pass. Yeah, right. But sounds like the five-year-old is ready to be put to yep, child labor. Turned, I mean, exactly. volunteer. <laughs> she just turned five in October, so she's definitely going to get put work to work here soon. Well, it's wonderful. And yeah. look where it leads. One, Did you ever expect or think? that this could happen? No, not at all. I mean, I when I moved back, I joined the board um, and was on the board of directors for a number of years. And uh, when Betsy, our longtime director, decided to step down to a volunteer <laughs> position during the pandemic, it just kind of fell into my lap a little bit. Um, and it seemed like a really good fit. And uh, yeah, I did not expect it. It was definitely a Fantastic. Kind of once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and I thought I'd take it. And it's an excellent teaching for all of us. You never know what's coming. Absolutely. So um, 
open your arms and your heart and your mind and beautiful things happen. Absolutely. And Betsy Millard, of course, did this t- fantastic job. She was here on a regular basis, yeah. and especially with Bruce Peterson, who is hilarious. Yeah. The two of them were like <laughs> like this comedy team. Yep, here. they're a great and duo. So that worked out well. Yeah. So she's still working there. As a matter of fact, let's talk about this exhibit. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah. Up. Did she curate that? Yeah, so she is our curator now, um, which is fantastic to still have her involved in the organization. And and she's really responsible for kind of where the museum has come in the last 10 plus years. Um, And so, yeah, she curated this exhibit with uh, our collections manager, Donella Lucero, uh, and then also our uh, collections assistant, uh, Stacey Piero, also uh, was involved. And yeah, it's called uh, The Heart of the Museum, The Aura of Objects, and it just opened. Okay, the heart of the museum, I like that. Mm-hmm. I didn't have that part. Yeah. I, that's good. So tell us what it means. Yeah, so <laughs> it's actually part one, uh, the show, and I'll talk about part two in a bit. But um, basically what it is is everything that the museum has in its collection was gifted to us by the community. And so this show gives us the opportunity to show recent accessions um, mm. and recent donations that were given within the last 10 years. And the the beauty behind the show is that it shows kind of how a mundane object like a pen or a yellow notepad actually can tell a really important story, either about an individual person or a specific time, um, and we have them on view, which a lot of these objects have either not been on view before mm-hmm. or we keep them in collections because they're because of their condition, so they can't mm. be on view very often. Right. Yeah. So so so. Somebody had to write up. I mean, if I walk in and see a pen yeah. or a pad, uh-huh. Yeah. Not so hot. But So who writes? Who does the writing? Yeah, so up? our collection team puts all that information together. So Donella and Betsy and Stacy are the ones who are responsible for putting the show together, collecting all the stories, and writing them up and getting them up in the show. And they do a great job. And does that material that they write up now stay with the object so that in the future it does yeah so we we keep all of that research um and we're constantly researching within our own collection uh, and then doing outside research as well but yeah all of that information stays with the objects and and within the collection so yeah and i have been following this museum um i'm not sure what started me because it is it's not even on the main drag it's one block over yeah it's perfect location uh and also the river city playhouse Mm -hmm. right next door so you get a double whammy yeah but um i've watched and i agree with what you said earlier that betsy millard has just grown this place and um i i don't remember i should um I don't think she came here to do this. No, she didn't. Um, I think she was came to the community. Well, she has history in the community. They she used to come out to visit family as a kid. She was raised in Kansas, um, but there was a family property out here that she would come to um, for the summer, and so she ended up back here. I think planning to retire. Um, uh, that's what I thought. Yeah, <laughs> and then ended up uh, the music. It was kind of 
similar. I think the directors of the museum, there's a, a long history of kind of right place, right time yeah. <laughs> with the right people. And we've gotten really lucky over the years with our directors, and Betsy was one of those. Yeah. So it um, must feel good to have a mentor, Absolutely. even though you grew up in the museum. Yeah, yeah. Uh, literally. Um, but to have a mentor and the fact that she's right there, too, just in case. It's so nice. I mean, it really is has been very helpful for the last two years. I don't have a background in museums. I don't have a background in being an executive director. So this has been a bit of a trial by fire. And, and you're a few years uh, younger, yeah. shall we say? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is yeah. great, um, but it's but it's been really helpful to have um, Betsy and then the rest of the team too, who have yeah. all been there for quite a number of years. Um, so there's a lot of historical knowledge just even within the building. So a lot of people are unaware of this museum. It yeah. used to be called, I think, the Iwako Museum. Yeah, the Iwako Heritage Museum. The yep. Iwako Heritage Museum, mm -hmm. right? And then one year, and I remember the transition. Yeah. It was like, oh, no, another Columbia Pacific. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> We've got so many. Um, a North Coast or Columbia Pacific. Right. But it works. It really works. It does. For that museum especially, it elevated it because it's not really Iwako. It's Absolutely. It's the entire area um, geographically and historically. Yep. And so tell us about this, um, the the train that's, uh, the trolley that's right next door. Yeah, it's so our rail car, it's the Nakata rail car. Um, it is a par part of the Ilwaco Railway and Navigation Company, uh, the IRNN Railroad, which ran from Nakata all the way kind of past Chinook to the Megler area. Um, and that was kind of late 1800s to early 1900s. Um, and this rail car was an original part of that. It's a passenger car. It was built by the Pullman Company. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a beautiful representation of a rail car of that time. And we have it in our collection. It was donated, I believe, in the 90s. Uh, when oh, really? I kind of remember it coming okay. to the museum when I was a kid. Uh, and it's uh, Okay, been... folks, you just found out how young she <laughs> yeah, really yeah, is. Yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> a child of the 90s. Um, and so, yeah, it's a it's it's our biggest uh, item in our collection, if, yeah, unless you're big. talking about the Ilwaco Freight Depot, which is the building right next to it, which is technically mm -hmm. larger and also part of our collection. Um, and you open it up. We open it up once a year uh, on railroad days weekend, which is uh, in July, um, mm -hmm. and you can walk through it and you can see the beautiful seats and yeah, see I've the inside that. of the car. Yeah, yeah it's gorgeous. Yeah, it is. And then uh, why I feel, I, I may not be accurate, but yeah. I feel as though the museum has grown so much. When I first come in, off to the right, there's the main new exhibit room. Yeah, our special exhibit gallery. Special. Mm -hmm. And and then to the left, there's a shop, which yep. is full of gorgeous and many um, objects made by local Yeah, it's mostly uh, artists. local artists and local books from and, local and authors, too. music as well. Mm -hmm. yep. And then... There's another space back in there, too. Yeah, so that's what our permanent that? collection. Ah. So, And it has changed a lot. Um, if you haven't been in within the last two years, you definitely should come down. We uh, did quite a large remodel in early 2021. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's quite different. New exhibits, new things to see. Uh, our village space is quite different than it used to be. Um, yeah, it, there's all kinds of new things to see. Well, I love that... Um 
you guys spent the um, pandemic time yeah. uh, very productively. We were very busy, and yeah. it actually really worked out well for us because while we were forced to be closed, it was perfect timing to do all that remodel. We wouldn't have been able to do it while being open anyway, so it kind of gave us the excuse to get that work done, um, and it's great. The museum really is beautiful at the moment. Yeah, it's a real joy to visit. Um, give us the address. Yeah, it's 115 Southeast Lake Street in Owaco. So if you go to the post office in Owaco, you'll see us kind of kitty corner from that. Sure, if you happen to know where the post office yeah. is. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. just drive up the main street yeah. and take a left at some yeah. point. Get on Lake Street yeah. and you'll find it. You'll find it. Yeah. It's quite quite easy. So again, the new exhibit is uh, just opened. Yep. And it's going to be up through March 4th. March 4th. Oh, I love that. March 4th. And you can march forth to the museum. Um, what days are you open? Yeah, so we're open Wednesdays through Saturdays, 10 to 4. Okay, and you're not going to be open tomorrow. Tomorrow will be closed for New Year's Eve, but um, typically we're open those okay. the other times. And yeah. starting again. Uh, on Wednesday. Yeah. And um, memberships, we don't give prices, but memberships are very um, affordable. And you don't have to be a member to go in. But And it's free. So our admission, we have been free now since we reopened in I 2021. Yeah. Great. So we are free to everyone every day. Uh, it's supported by the Port of Owaco um, and our membership as well and donations at the front desk. Uh, so it's a great time to come out. Great. Okay, so the new exhibit is called The Heart of the Museum, The Aura of Objects. Yeah. Love it. Wonderful. My guest, Madeline Matson, the um, executive director of the Columbia Pacific Heritage Museum. Madeline, you going to stick around for a while in that position? I, I hope so, yeah. No, I mean, it's definitely been an honor to, to have this role, and um, I definitely enjoy it. And you have to because you have these children, and you right. have to indoctrinate. I mean, you have to introduce them. To exactly, them. <laughs> exactly. No, they're, they're, That's great. the five-month-old comes to work with me most days. Yeah, so. but she's not too productive yet. Yeah, not yet. Right. But <laughs> Maybe someday. will be. Okay. Thank you so much for coming in. Again, folks, this is the Columbia Pacific Heritage Museum. What's the website? It's columbiapacificheritagemuseum.org. Okay. And I did want to mention we're having a special um, event on February 18th. It's uh, going to run during the show. It's 1 to 4 on that Saturday. It's called Caring for Your Family's Treasures. Oh. And so the idea is that all of these objects are a part, came from family collections and are a family treasure. And so we want to help people care for the objects that matter to them. So if it's a free event, come at 1 to 4, um, and we'll have examples of how to care for different types of objects like photographs or oh, dresses mm -hmm. or things like that um, and we'll have good examples from our collection and not so good examples so you can kind of see the difference and how to care for things we'll also do a gallery talk to talk about how important keeping the stories with the objects yeah. is because yeah. when you lose the story you often lose kind of the importance and the, the tangibility of that object which brings us full circle mm -hmm. to what am I looking at, and yeah. why is it here in the museum? Absolutely. Right? So right. I, I, it'll be a great event. Um, it's free again. So do people 
actually bring things with they them? They can. Or? Yep, okay. they can if they want, so or they can be. just come and talk to us about things. It's kind of a, a demonstration. Excellent. Um, yeah. So That's a great, great idea. Yeah. Love it. Okay. Thank you so much for yeah, coming in, Madeline. Absolutely. How's the bridge coming over? It was just fine. No problem. No problem. Okay, Knock folks. Knock on wood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And tui, tui, tui. Yeah. Great. Okay. Thanks awesome. again. Thanks so much. Madeline Matson from the Columbia Pacific Heritage Museum.org in Ilwaka, Washington, 115 Southeast Lake. A terrific place. And um, I did want to uh, mention, thank you, Hope, for the sad news um, that a favorite musician didn't live here, but he sure showed up a lot, and that would be Turtle Vandemar, died yesterday. So, uh, Nick, if all goes well, Nick has uh, lined up a piece of music uh, with Spud and Turtle. And uh, we say farewell to Turtle and um, our sympathies to his family and to all who knew and loved him. seem to have lost Kihei, but you heard Spud and Turtle, and we'll be hearing more music from them. Um, I've got a couple of poets coming up right now, and uh, one of them is live and well right here in the studio with me, and that would be Florence Sage, and the other is Robert Michael Pyle, Bob Pyle, as we call him, and uh, he is across that same bridge, uh, but a little bit further away, so um, we're going to speak to, or let Bob speak to us, by telephone. Uh, let's just check in and make sure. First, Florence, you're here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can see you. I know you're here. Bob, are you here? I'm here, Carol. Can oh, you hear me? I can. Hi, Florence. <laughs> oh, actually, Florence can't hear you. I just realized we oh. need to, I need to get another pair of phones. 
earphones. Oh, that's okay. For um, for her. I'll just listen to you. That's yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. I know what he's saying. For now, until I can do that. So I. Hi, Bob. I, <laughs> he can hear you, but you can. Yeah. Hi, Bob. Uh, high tech folks. Um, so, I invited uh, Florence and Bob here because I thought poetry was a great way to close out this old year and uh, help bring in the new year. And I also have a piece that I will be playing by another local poet, only this is actually a short fiction piece of his, my favorite. So um, I'm going to play a piece by Jim Dot as well. But um, Florence and Bob had a gig over at the library. Was that just last week? On the solstice, yes. On the solstice. And so... Um, and good attendance. Good attendance yeah, is it was great. A nice warm room. <laughs> that was wonderful because some of us who live far away um, were scared and we stayed home. With good reason. That's good. With good reason. Thank you. And so, with that in mind, um, I thought, wouldn't it be nice to have them come? And I'm going to start off asking Florence to read a piece and I'm going to go get some earphones so we can three of us talk together. Go ahead, Florence. What have you got for us? Okay, well, since you said you'd like to end the year on poetry, I thought I'd bring some that are about being a poet. Excellent. <clears throat> the first one's called The Flower Sweeper. The poet is between poems. She pulls weeds from the border along her street, lets the red leaves from the plum trees drift to the stones like a Japanese painting and stay and more weeds she pulls by the city's most historic house on walks with her dog in the park. Still more by the old co-op garbage cans, tidying up, pulls gently until the roots give way. Her hands get earthy. She carries away the dying greens. She doesn't sit on the benches. She goes to her knees. As she swishes the fallen rhododendron blooms off her sidewalk one morning in June with her broom, her neighbor calls her the flower sweeper of Astoria. <laughs> and under the petals dropping palest pink to the pavement at the corner of the concrete wall where the bush arches like an umbrella overhead on the hillside and she pauses to chat. He tells her he's got a leaf blower. Why not use it? But she needs the quiet, the rhythmic sweep of her broom, the scrapes on her fingers, the work, the dirt, the pang of the nerve in her left knee when she kneels. Needs the discarded petals, leaves, pine cones, the weeds, the unwelcome and the spent to touch and consider. Needs something to feel something about needs to linger under frail, silent blossoms with meditative movements for time to disappear, needs to stretch her limbs across indifferent space, and she needs that little bit of pain. Mm. The poet really needs a poem. Mm. Oh, wow. Wow. That's wonderful. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure you're familiar with... Uh, Ray Riella wrote a song called The Bottle Picker. 
Okay. And it's uh, from Brown's Mead. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about the flower sweeper and the bottle picker, I'm thinking the poetry, the song, and yeah. the action, the work. Get your body involved, it, it, yeah. It, it, it's, it's all one. Mm -hmm. It's all one. <laughs> when did you write that? Oh, maybe three years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I lived in a condo on the hill, and there were, there were plum trees there. And, and a leaf blower. <laughs> and and um, is that what kind of... I'm just wondering if you can just shortly say what motivated you to put it into the poem. I really was anxious about being between poems. <laughs> and I, I guess I felt good doing that. And, you know, eventually... Like, it, the po poetry has such steady rhythm that it sort of brought it to me and I started composing it in my head while I was doing it. So there it was. So as we've determined on this show before, you haven't always written poetry. But now that you're writing it, you really need to write it. Yeah, for about 24 years now I've been writing. But, yeah. but there was a long time before then I wrote other things. Including right. feature stories and newspapers. Right. Quite, quite <laughs> and different. PR. <laughs> Why don't you give us one more poem and then, Bob, stay tuned because we're going to uh, bring you in. Right, you are. Okay, I'll read this one called The Poet is Summoned. <clears throat> I have been called to the courtyard of the county courthouse because I wrote seven words in a poem naming and describing an act against the law. It must be the Times in America, 2020. Rounded up with a bunch of corporate types who've actually done that deed most every day. <laughs> I'm surprised and appalled, though not afraid. I merely wrote it and read it aloud at the mic. Seven words, one line, in one poem. It's complicated <clears throat> in a murky corner of the enormous gray area of the law, hence the many lawyers on hand. <laughs> But question for writing and inciting? Come on, I'm a poet. Are we Soviets? <clears throat> I reach a hand back <clears throat> excuse me, through a half-open window in the basement. <clears throat> sorry, sorry. <clears throat> I reach a hand back <clears throat> through a half-open window in the basement, and it's taken by a clerk preparing arguments for trials upstairs, including mine. <laughs> taken softly, and he gives my hand a squeeze. He's read my poem more than once, and he knows I'm going to argue for myself. <laughs> I'll stand my ground in an upturned field, reciting the splendid words I wrote to the wind, wearing the wool socks I knit in jail, <laughs> and my big button sweater with a collar of wolf. Oh, my God. Now, wait. This is not a true story. A dream. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it started as a dream. <laughs> okay. I don't know what the words are. I'll never know. Wow. <laughs> Oh, that's interesting because I had some in mind myself. But um, thank you for that because, um, yeah, it, it's, it says it quite firmly, what has been going on. And it was 2020. Yeah. Well, and it still is. So mm -hmm. it's not 2020 anymore, but it's still yeah. going on. Mm -hmm. So, okay, well, now I'm going to... Um, Turn your mic off so you can have a drink of water and all that kind of good stuff. And Bob. Hi, Carol. Hi. Now, um, I'm not sure what you are going to read for us first. You have 
some, uh, you have a new, do you have two new books out? Is that what's going well, on? Well, I have the, the book of Tia's writings. Right. It's just come out. We talked about that. And then the, uh, the brand new book is a little chap book. I think uh, Florence has brought you one, has she not? She has. But it's called The Children of the Night Went Forth. And, and I'd like to say a very short word about that and then read several of those poems. They're very short, back-to-back. And then uh, we can say a word. And then I'd like to conclude with a poem about tomorrow. Okay. New Year's Day. Okay. Okay. Thank you. This is a little chapbook just printed with the help of my, my great printer's laser print in Astoria. Uh, it's called The Children of the Night Went Forth. This is a good transition from Florence's because this began as a dream, too, but quite literally so, because I woke up one day with this line in my head from a dream. The children of the night went forth. I said, what the heck is that supposed to mean? But it wouldn't let me go. It was like a little terrier at my heels until I sat down and wrote it. And, of course, it immediately formed into a poem. And then I went ahead and wrote 21 more of them um, in the same form, nine lines. And they're all about the childhood adventures of my brother Tom and me. Mm -hmm. Um, His birthday was day before yesterday, and I got this to him just in time. Oh, sweet. Happy birthday, Tom. Uh, Yeah, happy birthday, Tom. (laughs) And he called in tears. I haven't heard him in tears in many years. I'd like to read uh, a few of these, if I may, Carol. They're very short. The children of the night went forth into the soft evenings of suburbia. As soon as they could open the screen door, the dimity drew them forth, and there was no one to say no, because that's what children did in those days, in that place where dusk and freedom wore the same clothes and had the same unspoken name. Hmm. Nice. The children of the night... Play hide-and-seek. Then came summer, and with it, dusks like velvet in their warmth and softy dark. Everyone came outside, but no dads or moms, just the kids. No sooner did they emerge into the night, their natural habitat, and meet to check in and set rules, than they dispersed to bush, shed, cranny, shadow, and hid. And from there it was only an assumption that they would ever be found. Yet somehow, knowing for sure they'd be back again tomorrow night, they all made it home for supper. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Wonderful. Old dog day. When the family had <clears throat> excuse me, when the family had spare ribs for dinner, they took care to leave meat on the bone and saved all the gnawed ribs in a brown shopping bag. Then they slipped out the back screen door, down the lawn, over the fence, and into the alleys, a secret network behind the houses, alternate routes for children and other animals. At every yard with the dog, they flung the ribs over the fence, crying, dog day, dog day, all through the neighborhood. (laughs) And that's followed by the children of the night become Catman. On certain still evenings after sunset, excuse me, on certain still evenings after sunset, 
the children took again to the alleyways. Now, as the night raiders, no sack of bones in hand. They took care to move quietly, not to disturb the dogs with false hopes. Slipped around houses, <laughs> through the bushes, paused with a silent nod, and then one of them would ululate shrilly into the night. And that's how they got to be Catman. <laughs> hey. Children of the night catch moths. Some came to spring lilacs after rain in the dusk. Pink-winged sphinxes with hummingbird tongues. Others clung to streetlight poles or the window sills of stores. Scarlet, black, and cheddar tigers, scads of army cutworms. But for the best specimens, dove gray alipia, jade green campia, they went porchlight to porchlight in their neighborhood. Nobody missed the moths they stole, and there were only kids. So no guns, and only once did the sheriff show up. <laughs> and uh, finally, of these, <clears throat> the children of the night visit the witch. The old red house just had to have a witch. Sometimes they saw her watering lilacs where swallowtails loitered, but that didn't fool them. So one night they dared their way onto her veranda where millers battered the screen by the hundreds. How they jumped when the back door screeched and she appeared. Take all you want of those, she said, waving at the moths. It ended with cookies and lemonade, and her name was Robina. Oh, my goodness. How fabulous. No wonder your brother was crying. Um, you know, they're so short. We can't do two more to wrap these up. Do okay, sure. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me, thank you. This one is called This Children of the Night Sell Stuff. Whoever condemned child labor did not know the children of the night. Lazy as a rule, they could work their little butts off to make a nickel, dig peach cans of dandelions, cut lawns, wash cars, but best for spawn of a salesman was selling stuff. Kool-Aid, of course, from a card table, but also door-to-door. -door. White cloverine salve, burpee seeds, Christmas cards, even seashells. Jewels of the sea, they'd call. Customers saw them coming and locked their doors. <laughs> but, finally, the children of the night do Halloween. One always went as a tiger. The other is a leopard, or a knight in armor, or a desperado, according to their reigning passions. Their mom dressed the hall lamp as a witch to scare the trickers, but mostly scared the tiger, giving him nightmares on his sugar-filled stomach. Each year, they enjoyed their one sanctioned venture deep into the night, neighbor to neighbor, claiming bags of candy as tribute from those who never bought their salve. Oh, my God. This Now, is this really um, muchly based on you and your brother's childhood? Absolute verisimilitude. Oh my There's goodness. not a bit of imagination in it. That is hilarious. The only imagination came from dredging up the stories 
And I shared a couple of earlier versions of some of them with my brother to have him help me with a uh-huh. couple of details. And there are two other, actually two other boyhood friends made cameos in a couple of the poems. But most of them are Tommy and me. And that's exactly right. The night was our place. And Carol, in those days, the children got to go into the night. And it wasn't gendered. The boys and girls. Where did you live? Pardon? Oh, well, we lived at first in North Denver uh, and uh, right on the edge of town. What city? And Denver, Denver, Denver. Colorado. Okay. And then most of them are in Aurora, Colorado, on the east side, which is a, can be a fairly threatening place these days. But it was a very benign in those days. And children simply had access yeah. to oh, yeah. un- Yep. Supervised play yep. out of doors. We did too in Brooklyn, New York. I believe that. Yep. I absolutely do. In the mid 40s. I, I, I took the subway by yourself and everything else. Well, I got lost every time, so that was, <laughs> that was a whole nother story. But, you know, your um, children of the night catch moths. I had to laugh because I was, re- as you spoke these, the beginning, I just closed my eyes and listened and imagined. But I also noticed that these were so um, descriptive, so alive uh, from real life of kids. And knowing your work, I was thinking, ha, this is so different. And then we got to Children of the Night Catch Moths, and we had the pink-winged sphinxes. Yeah, we we got them scarlet, black, and cheddar. Tigers, scads of army cutworms. And and even the specimens. So you did manage to get that. Uh, I did. Scientific. Well, that was a period that was you couldn't resist. Where I was learning the butterflies and moths is my ah. great one of my great passions in the world, and it coincided with our nighttime foraging habits. And great. truly, the sheriff only came once. <laughs> Good. We didn't have sheriffs in Brooklyn, so that was okay. Uh, yeah. Um, and, but, the, and the moths were so lovely, where, and almost no one paid them any attention. Oh. So they didn't mind us doing it. No, I'm sure, especially. But it brings it back, the names, the colors. Thank you for noticing that, Carol. Um, tell me, where is this uh, The Children of the Night chapbook available? I don't know. Okay, <laughs> not yet. Well, we'll I've go- got half of them. Forrest has got a bunch. Okay. I don't have it anywhere yet. Who did I may the, ask um, uh, uh, Charlie and Brenda if they'll put it in uh, in Godfather's. It's very cheap, okay. and it's not very long, 21 of these. Who did the... Um, the moon on the back, the drawing. Well, I found um, I found an internet picture that was uh, available, not copyrighted. Mm-hmm. Perfect. But I had to uh, alter it quite a bit. I didn't like its expression uh-huh. in the shape of its nose and chin. Mm-hmm. So I started with the, the image I found there, went into an art program, and and uh, right. redrew it myself. Right. But the Edited. one on the cover the, with the boys, yeah, uh, hand in hand. Right. Just about the right size. Yeah, it was also a freeware thing on yeah. found on the internet, but it's so exquisitely appropriate. Well, this is precious, and I think I'm I'm keeping this one, but I may have to uh, share it with my brothers. I've got two brothers, who uh, not quite the same adventures, but uh, similar sizes. So well, wonderful. Good. This I'm is... glad. I'll make sure you you get those. Basically, if people want one at this point, uh, get in touch with with me or with. Or with Florence. Okay, now I'm going to have to. Um, how is your New Year's Day poem short? Yes, it's good. N- okay, longer than those. Because 
we need to do this. I think, Florence, do you have one more short one? Because I do want to make sure to play. As a matter of fact, maybe what I would like to do is play Jim Dot's piece right now. I think that Bob and Florence, you have heard it, and others from Rick's mic. I was in stitches when I heard it at Rick's mic, and so um, Jim shared it with me. So why don't you... Uh, relax, and we will all listen together to this um, uh, particular piece. It's called The Last Book by Jim Dot. Hello, this is Jim Dot. I'll be reading my short fiction piece, The Last Book. When he retired, he had to cram all the books from his campus office into his home study. This made him realize he needed to reduce his library. He didn't want to burden his wife or children with the disposal of all those books. He feared it would end up being just that. Besides, the shelves, desk, and floor of his study being so precariously stacked were, in his wife's words, a disaster in waiting. The first culling was painless. Home-brewing books were easy. He didn't make beer anymore. The same for manuals for cars he had sold, and duplicate and triplicate copies. How did that happen? For the next round, he adapted the strategy of that Japanese clutter reducer, attacking each shelf and pile, asking book by book, Have I read you? If so, will I read you again? If not, will I ever read you? Yes, no, maybe. The no's went. He gave the maybes three months. The yeses, six. On the third round, he was more ruthless, no maybes. He cleared an entire bookcase and sold it to a neighbor, insurance against backsliding. He began replacing poets' individual books with collected works. The strategy worked for dead or older poets like Haney and Plath, Snyder and Gluck. Younger poets did not fare so well. His set of Shakespeare's plays, which he'd inherited from his father, who'd gotten them from his mother, were shipped to a nephew and replaced with a used copy of the complete works. Getting rid of the cold books proved difficult. He had limited success at Powell's. Sorry, sir, but there's no market for poetry. He did not have the skills or patience to sell online. He gifted some, but most went to thrift stores. Rereading Borges's collected fictions shifted the mission to a more spiritual, or as his wife put it, more fanatical focus. One of Borges's later stories recounts an ancient bard's visit to a country where poetry has been distilled to a single word. He concluded that his library could and should be condensed to a single book. His wife told him, just leave the cookbooks alone, and secretly moved all the books by their friends to a bookcase in her studio. If he noticed, he never mentioned it. He read and rejected the books of the big religions plus the Ramayana and the Tao Te Ching. For several weeks, Gilgamesh held the coveted spot, then the Odyssey. He reread all of Shakespeare, but he couldn't decide between a comedy, a tragedy, or a history, so the complete works went. After some reflection, he decided to search for a more recent book. He tried Ulysses again, but still found it hard sailing. He read or reread all the Pulitzer Prize winners. He enjoyed returning to Cather and Welty, Steinbeck and Stegner, but none of them were the one, though Agee's A Death in the Family 
and Morrison's beloved each held him for days after finishing. People offered suggestions. These ranged from the amusing, the joy of sex, his wife's suggestion. They had fun with that. To the appalling, anything by Stephen King, his teenage niece's pick. He found a friend's suggestion of the new Columbia Encyclopedia intriguing and read it from cover to cover. It took six months, but left him with a fractured foot. He dropped the massive tome on it after finishing page 3052. His brother-in-law's suggestion of John McPhee's Annals of the Former World on the geology of North America seemed inspired. By now he knew he was seeking a book with great depth and timelessness, Annals certainly had the depth, yet it was all about time. Deep time, but time nonetheless. Though it evoked warm memories of summers in the West with his geologist father, he still had to reject it. He came to realize the book he sought must be written with a singular voice that spoke to these times but was rooted in our oldest stories, the Earth's and the universe's evolution, and all the myriad connections between and beyond, a book that also transcended all of that. His wife told him, You're on a fool's errand, dear. It's an impossible quest with no grail at the end. You'll fail unless you write it yourself. He went to his empty study, rolled his chair to the desk, and began the last book. The Last Book by Jim Dot. It's James Dot, and right here at KMU, and we know Jim as the wonderful bedtime story reader and coordinator of the program. Uh, and Florence and Jim um, ran. Didn't you guys run the um, open mic way back? Yes. Way back at the River Theater, mm-hmm. and and, then and we we co-hosted. You can speak. Oh, <laughs> oh, and we and we are um, co-hosts uh, at Winecraft for right. Rick's Poetry Mic, which is first Tuesdays at seven p.m. Right, and Bob is often there as well, sharing it. A good group of people, mm-hmm. and you can come too. You don't have to share a poem, but you can if you've got one. Bob, we've got two and a half minutes. Can you fit your poem in? Oh, are you there? Are you there, Florence? Yeah, we're all here. We're all here. Can yes, you? That's you, Florence. Yes, yes, we're all here. No, you. Uh, no, 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 no. You're, it's time to read the New Year's poem because that's tomo- that's two days. New Year's, New Year's. Thank you. New Year's Eve on Puget Island. Pocket handkerchief of shoreline on the channel side, spruced up, also dogwood and blackberry bound, plus willow, alder, reed, canary grass, and broom almost impenetrable. Nearby shore rip-wrapped, but green and soiled over, rocks filled in with volcanic ash. Sharp-shinned hawk, breast herring-boned red, swoops along the shore. Fifty pintails rise off the river, turn north, overhead. The sharpie shoots back, across the other way, flicking its tail like a cat. Follow it to Willow Cove, hinged in by driftwood logs and root wads, platforms for gathering river silt, for growing of sedges, shelf fungus fingernails, brush, briar, algae, moss, and ferns, as if 
having lost their own lives, the best these logs and wads can do is to give a boost for something else that still wants to live. Wow. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy Healthy New Year. That was Bob Pyle with his... uh, That was from the Tidewater Reach. Tidewater Reach, that was it. Which is at River Sea Gallery, and so are mine. Yes, River Sea Gallery and Astoria carries both their books. Uh, Not yet the chapbook, though. And Rick's Open Mic, First Tuesday, and that was New Year's Day on Puget Island. Thanks so much for joining me, um, Bob, and be well and joyful. And Florence, thank you so much for coming in. And Happy New Year, everybody. Happy uh, thank you New for Year. having us, Carol. You bet. Yes, Happy New Year to all. Bring it in, bring in the new year. Bring it in, bring in the new year. org or 503-325-0010. KMUN.